Hey everyone, before we get into tonight's stories, I just wanted to let you know, remind you rather, that you could be listening to stories a day or two days in advance. Um, you can do so by becoming a patron over on Patreon for a dollar a month, or you can become a member to the channel, also a dollar a month, or five if you would like to pledge a little bit more. If that doesn't sound like something you're interested in, we are also raising money for Trans Lifeline in honor of LGBTQIA plus History Month. Um, if that sounds like something you want your dollar to go to instead of me, totally understand and greatly appreciate it. I don't have a goal in mind. I just wanted to do something special for the trans community specifically. All the information about Trans Lifeline can be found on their website, Trans Lifeline. It'll be linked in the description if I remember. Um, but just want to let you all know that. So if you want to get videos early, Patreon or becoming a member are great. And also if you'd like to rather donate to the Trans Lifeline, that'll be to the right of the video as well, or below if you're on mobile. Now, let's get right into tonight's stories. When I was little, I almost drowned. I was staying for a few days with my grandmother, Agatha. All of her seven grandchildren were expected to visit during the summer months, and at the time, I was no different. She was a distant woman and seemed to hide some kind of poisonous anger behind a thin veneer of cold courtesy, and even as a young girl, I often wondered why she wanted to occupy her summers with a rotation of children she seemed to care about very little. None of our parents seemed to question it, though, whether due to love or duty or fear or the simple fact that Agatha was very, very rich. So, when at seven a man stepped from the woods, my first thought was that he was a gardener. He wore a dark gray suit and white gloves, but I'd seen a maid and butler in the house for years, and they both dressed up fancy too, so in my child's mind... It wasn't unreasonable that my grandmother would make people wear a suit to work outside as well. I was playing at the edge of the backyard garden. One of the advantages of my grandmother's perpetual disinterest was that I pretty much did what I wanted without supervision when I visited on my own. And after glancing up at the man's arrival and giving him a nervous smile, I turned to look back at whatever it was I'd been doing. It was then I saw it out of the corner of my eye. The man was running for me. I had time to look up and take in more detail of the man as he lurched forward toward me with outstretched arms. Time to see how gray his skin was in the daylight and how his mouth hung open like the entrance to a flesh cave of black gums and broken teeth. A chance to see how large his eyes were, nearly all whites except for small rings of blue iris wrapped around pinpricks of black. Enough opportunity to suck in a breath to scream, only to find the air forced out in a soundless whoosh as he reached me and yanked me back toward the ground. I was terrified, of course, my mind already flooding with vague, abstract versions of all the terrible things that could happen if a stranger got you. I tried to struggle, but it was little use. He had a fistful of my hair and was far stronger than me dragging me with ease toward the center of the yard where a large reflecting pool sat waiting. My mouth was ready to try another scream when we hit the water. The shock of the cold stunned me for a moment, and before I could recover, he was forcing my head beneath the surface. I struggled again harder this time, some dark corner of my brain kicking into a gear at the threat of not just future dangers, but immediate death. still didn't matter. I never even got my head above water, and it wasn't long before the world began to darken as my mind narrowed down to a thin sliver of consciousness. It was as that last strand of desperate, terrified thought was about to break that the man's hands were suddenly gone, and I felt my body lurch up in a desperate search for air. 
It took a couple of minutes of me laying next to the pond, retching and crying, before I could even stand to go look for help. There was no sign of the man anywhere, not even wet footprints where he might have run off, but I was horrified at the thought that he might reappear at any moment. I crawled to the edge of the back patio as I caught my breath, and when I did manage to stand up, I ran inside and found my grandmother, hugging her and weeping as I tried to explain what had happened. She was less than impressed. She told me I shouldn't make up fanciful tales to excuse playing in the water which had dirtied my clothes and no doubt left a trail of dirt and wet throughout her house as well as on her. Face stern, she pried me away and held me at arm's length, studying me for a moment. You don't seem the worse for wear. Go clean up and change your clothes. Lunch will be in fifteen minutes. I did go and change, but not until I had snuck and called my mother to come get me. She was reluctant at first, but when she heard how upset I was and what I was saying, she told me that her and my father would be there by the afternoon. They came as promised, and what followed was an hour of heated argument between them and my grandmother, followed by my parents taking me home. After that, I never went back to visit my grandmother again, and as I got older, I came to understand that, for all intents and purposes, Agatha no longer considered us part of her family. So, I was surprised that two months after her death, I got a call from my grandmother's attorney, asking me to arrange a time to come in to discuss my inheritance. I almost didn't go at all. While I could use the money, I knew she had cut my parents out of her will, and I had nothing but bad memories associated with the woman myself. I talked to my mother about it. She encouraged me to go. She said that whatever her mother had been, she was gone now, and I shouldn't pass up the opportunity to get whatever it was, just because of bad childhood memories. Maybe, my mother said, this was Agatha's way of trying to make up for what happened years before. The next week, I was sitting alone in a large wood-paneled conference room in the lawyer's office, staring at two envelopes. The attorney had pointed out the writing on the front of each, saying that, as my grandmother had indicated, if I choose to open the envelopes, I should start with the one on the left and then follow with the one on the right. I'd given him a funny look at that, asking why it mattered. He only shrugged, saying that it was Agatha's wish and he asked that I abide by it. By the time he'd left, I already decided I was opening the right one first, if for no other reason than... Well, fuck Agatha. She was a weird, controlling bitch, even from the grave. Or was trying to be. Smirking at the thought and feeling a kind of happy anger bubbling in my chest, I grabbed up the right envelope and went to tear it open, but the paper didn't budge. It was nice thick paper, but I saw no reason why I shouldn't be able to rip it. Grimacing, I tried again with no luck. I looked at the edge of where it had been sealed shut, thinking I might could pry it open there with a fingernail, but that didn't work either. I tossed the envelope back down and stared at it. There was definitely something inside of it, something with a bit of weight to it that slid around. A key, maybe? The paper was too thick to tell too thick and apparently made of Kevlar. Sighing, I looked at the other envelope. It read, Open this envelope first. And just seeing the delicate loops of my grandmother's handwriting made my stomach clench a little. I considered going and asking for a pair of scissors or something to get the right envelope open, but I decided against it. I was being petty and dragging this whole thing out way more than it needed to be. Better to try the other one than to go from there if it was any easier to open. If it wasn't, I'd borrow a blowtorch or something. The left envelope opened easily, however, and inside I found a single sheet of cream-colored stationery lined with more of Agatha's writing.
Despite the truncated nature of our relationship and the unreasonable behavior of your parents, I am bequeathing you something of great worth. In truth, out of all that I have, is one of the greatest values to me, and perhaps in time, to you. I call it Birdie, Birdie the Cat. This may seem childish to you, and it is, but I first acquired Birdie when I was a young woman that still possessed a whimsical sense of humor, not yet hardened and sharpened by the stony truths of the world. You may be asking now if I mean an actual living creature or if this is just a metaphor. I assure you it's the former, though I understand your confusion and how a normal cat would live for such a long time as to be passed on to you. And the answer is simple. Birdie is not a normal cat. He does not require much from you other than the three following things. First, your companionship. He will always be with you. Second, once a year, he will ask you for a name. It must be someone you have personally met and that is alive, but those are the only requirements. Third, a week after you give him a name, he will grant you a wish. There are certain limitations on this, but Bertie is capable of doing miraculous things. If you abide by these rules, you will find your time with Bertie very pleasant and profitable. Enjoy. Your grandmother, Agatha Dance. P.S. You may now open the other envelope. I stared at the letter for a moment and then reread it. Was it some kind of practical joke or had she gone senile before the end? I glanced back at the other envelope. Maybe it was some odd prank where the other envelope had a key in it to her house or to a storage unit filled with cat litter. Either way, it all seemed really out of character for my grandmother, or at least my idea of who she had been. I stopped at that thought. The truth was, I had no idea who she really was. My memories of her weren't positive, and the stories I'd heard from my parents weren't much different or better, but all of that was also tainted by the fear and anger of what had happened when I was a child and her reaction to it. Maybe there was more to her than that small window from the past. Maybe she was just a quirky woman, isolated by her success and hamstrung by personality flaws. Maybe by the end, she was sorry for how things had gone, and this really was her way of trying to make up for it. Shaking my head, I pulled out my phone and tried to call my mother. This was all so weird, and I wasn't sure... I wanted to even open the other envelope, money or no money. The phone just rang and then went to voicemail, so I hung up. Frowning down at the right envelope, I let out a sigh. I'd try to open it one more time. If I couldn't, I'd carry it outside, the lawyer or somebody could open it for me, and I'd finally find out what the punchline to all this really was. But this time... The envelope opened easily. My heart hammering, I tipped it, catching the heavy thing inside as it slid out into my palm. As it landed there, I let out a hiss and let it drop to the table with a clatter. Looking back to my hand, I saw a small dot of blood, and when I glanced back to the thing on the table, I understood why. It was a small, flat oval of metal, ornately carved with symbols winding around three tiny but sharp-looking bumps protruding from each side. One of these stubby needles had been what poked me, and I had a moment of panicked thoughts ranging from tetanus to poison-tipped booby traps, but no, I was being silly. It was looking more and more like my grandmother had just been crazy when she died, and whatever it was... It seemed harmless enough, aside from being sharp. Wondering why it hadn't torn or poked through the envelope, I looked inside to find a second letter that had been buried within the piece of metal. Congratulations. Birdie is yours now. The object bundled with this note is very special. In some circles, it is known as a staring eye. In others, a tumorin. For you, it's a symbol of your bond with Birdie, and like Birdie... 
it will always be with you. Do not attempt to rid yourself of it. It will always come back to you. Do not fail to abide by the rules outlined in the other letter. If you do so, I say you will have a good life. If you do not, Bertie will become angry. We humans do not understand true anger or true despair. But you will find angry Bertie to be a very good teacher. I'm curious what you will do. If you're like the worthless parents of yours, you will see it as a curse. If you have some of my strength, however, you may find yourself thanking me for the greatest gift you've ever received. Time will tell. I'll say goodbye with this last bit of advice and a small secret between grandmother and granddaughter. Remember that others cannot see Bertie. Often you won't either, but he sees you. He always, always sees you. As for the secret, I didn't pick you for this. He did. Fifteen minutes later, I was back in my car. I tried questioning the lawyer about the letters and the metal eye, but he wouldn't say anything other than that he had been explicitly told by Agatha to let the inheritance speak for itself. When I asked about Bertie, he paled slightly and told me he had a meeting he was late for, but that he certainly hoped I had a good rest of my day. It was as I was driving out of the parking lot that my phone began to ring. Hey, honey. I've been trying to get to you after I saw I missed your call. Is everything okay? Uh, yeah, I think so. I just left the lawyer's office from the inheritance thing. It was super weird. Weird how? What did they give you? A couple of letters and some metal thing? The letters were really odd. Like, did Grandma ever have a cat named Bertie? There was a pause, and then, did you say cat? No. She never had any pets when we were growing up, or later on either, and I mean, I can't say she had or didn't have in the last 20 years, but I'm pretty positive it wouldn't be a cat either way. Why? Your grandmother, she was a very strong woman, cold and hard to know, yes, but I can't deny that she was very strong-willed and determined, fearless, at least most of the time. The one thing that terrified her was a cat. I think it was from something that happened to her as a child, but I can tell you that she hated them for as long as I knew her. Hated them because they were the only thing she was actually scared of. When I finished talking to my mother, I was no closer to understanding what I'd been given and why than when I started. She didn't know what a staring eye or tumorin was, although she admitted most Agatha's beliefs and interests were mysteries to her far before our family split in two. She suggested I get the piece of metal appraised to see if it was somehow valuable before throwing it away. I almost argued against the idea by pointing out that it was probably just a piece of junk from a crazy old woman, but something stopped me before I began. I think it was the wounded sound in my mother's voice at having to talk about the dead woman at all, at having to remember how things had been left between them and speculate at what had become of Agatha over the last decades of her life. I don't think my mother regretted cutting us off from her, but I'm old enough now to understand that even the right choice can hurt sometimes. So I let it go, and I came home and put the envelopes in a drawer. I spent the next few minutes looking online for reputable appraisers, but before long I was too sleepy to do anything but sink into my pillow in the swallowing dark. I woke up a few hours later when something climbed onto my bed. Sitting up, I blinked blearily in the darkness, heart pounding. Maybe it had been a dream, like when you wake up and you think you're falling. But there was a man sitting at the foot of my bed. I let out a gasp as I pulled my legs in and sat up further. Who who are you? What, what are you doing here? 
The man just stared at me, smiling as I stared back, transfixed by my fear and the realization that in the silver light of the moon I recognized him. I remembered him. His gray suit and matching skin, his boiled egg eyes and drooping jagged bone mouth, ghost white gloves covering the long fingered strong hands that had drugged me by the hair and held my face underwater until I almost drowned. The man from my memories and my nightmares. The thing that in all of my life I feared the most. I recognized him. But more importantly, I knew who he was. Voice trembling, I breathed out the question like an offering. Birdie? The man's bony shoulder shook with a deep rumbling chuckle as his boneless lips twitched and stretched. Meow. Sleep paralysis had been a constant in my life for as long as I could remember. From a young age, I'd lie awake completely motionless. I'd gotten used to it by the time I was 13, and now, pushing 30, I've come to accept it as part of my life. Now, before you ask or make assumptions, I'll say this. It hasn't been a complete walk in the park. Staying over at friends' houses in elementary school became a big no-no quick. Mackenzie wasn't too jazzed about me sleeping with my eyes open at 3 in the morning. When we both made it to middle school and our friendship ended, she began spreading a rumor that I was some freak or a vampire. Kids would get their hands wet and fling water on me, screaming, The power of Christ compels you over and over again. It was a rough three years. High school, though, was a completely different story. No one really cared about my sleep paralysis. Hell, some kids invited me over to their house just to see if it would happen. Most times it did. But even worse than being called a freak or being a party trick to people were two things. No one knows why it happens. But the worst thing about sleep paralysis, even worse than being called a freak or being a party trick to people, was two things. No one knows why it happens in the hallucinations. I would say 90% of the time they're mild, just some simple shapes and colors merging in a way that someone would imagine an acid trip. It's surreal, but not scary. Same with auditory hallucinations. Here and there, I'll hear my name being called, or a far-off, muffled conversation, but never anything that startles me out of an episode. But the other 10%, it's like being stuck in a hellscape of every one of my worst nightmares. I say all this as a way to explain why I'd participate in a sketchy-looking ad I found online while searching for a new job. The ad said it was looking for people who deal with sleep paralysis on a regular basis, somewhere in the ballpark of three to five times a week, and the episodes needed to last over an hour. You needed to be over an 18, seeing as you would need to sign many waivers, but age and gender didn't play a role in their choice. It seemed too good to be true, especially when I saw that they would be paying the participants $1,000 a week. Better yet, it would be upfront. I sent them an email expecting to get an alert from my bank that they had somehow stolen all my information, but a week passed and no such thing happened. At that point, I'd given up on the idea of getting paid to sleep and had applied to various other jobs in my area. On the way to an interview for one, I got a call. I was going to get to the interview early on account of being too worried about being late, so I answered it with a simple, Hello? A young woman answered on the other side. Is this Matthew Brown? I nodded and said, Yes, this is him. Who is this? I'm calling on behalf of Sleep Lux. I understand you are interested in participating in our sleep paralysis study. <laughs> Seeing this was actually happening, I switched over to my more professional voice to try and make a good impression. 
yes, I, I was very interested. Just let me know what I need to do. We talked on the phone for about 30 minutes as she went through a few more questions. Some were simple, like, where did I grow up? When was my first experience with sleep paralysis? And what did I see or hear most often? Then the questions began to get much more personal. Did you suffer trauma as a child, including physical and emotional? Did you move houses a lot as a child or as an adult? What are you most afraid of? And then came the strangest of all. Do you believe there is life after death? I was shocked and confused. Sharing my concern, I said, What does this have to do with... Just answer the question, please, sir. Uh, no, I don't. She simply responded with a low, hmm, before finishing the phone call with, Come to the address sent to your email tomorrow at 8 p.m. That will be your first night, and you'll have six nights after that. Each morning upon waking, you'll fill out a short journal expressing what you felt and saw during your episode, if you have one. If you do not have one, you will simply leave it blank. I hope you understand. If you have any questions, please address them with your assigned doctor when you arrive. Your participation is greatly appreciated by all of us at Sleeplux. Take care, sir. And the line went dead. Well, they're efficient, I thought. I was more confused now than I'd been when I first saw the ad, but I really needed the money. So I convinced myself, no matter how sketched out I was about the whole thing, I'd see it through to the end. I went ahead with my scheduled interview and then drove home spending the rest of the day trying to relax and get ready for tomorrow. The building was much smaller than I was expecting. With talk of doctors and researchers, I was expecting something the size of your average hospital. What I got instead was a fairly modest two-story colonial-style house. Out front, there was a sign that read, Sleep Lux. There was a cartoon pillow and mattress holding hands and smiling with a speech bubble above it that said, Sweet dreams. I tried to stifle my laughter as I went inside and met a young woman at the front desk. I assumed it was the same woman I'd heard on the phone. She was busy typing away at her desk, so I just stood there waiting to get her attention as to not rush her. But, as I said, this company was efficient. Not taking her eyes from the computer screen, she said, Are you Matthew Brown? I responded in the affirmative. Go down the hall to the left. Your bedroom is the third on the right. Your doctor will be with you shortly. I just nodded and went on ahead, seeing as she clearly wasn't the talkative type. As I began walking, I noticed all the walls of the house, for lack of a better word, were totally bare. There were no photos, no paintings, no informational pamphlets or outdated magazines. Nothing that you'd usually find in a doctor's office or a hospital. I jumped when I heard a new voice behind me. A man's voice. It's so our participants don't get influenced into seeing or feeling a certain way. Turning around, I found a small, lanky fellow in a lab coat that was much too large for him. I'm Dr. Prue, but you can just call me Doc or Prue. Either's fine with me. I'm going to be the one overlooking you while you're here. I assume Penelope has taken all your information and given you the questionnaire? I nodded. Great! Let's get you settled in, then. He motioned to the door beside us, and I stepped inside, him following close behind. I was surprised by the weight of the door, but once I was in the room, I saw why it was so thick. The room had been completely soundproofed. There were large acoustic panels across every inch of the walls, thick carpet on the floor, and a simple twin-sized bed in the middle of the room with white sheets and pillows. On either side was what you'd expect in a hospital room, things like a heart rate monitor and an IV bag. The only thing that was noticeably different, aside from the carpet and acoustic paneling, were the cameras sitting up in each corner of the room. Prue, who'd been typing away at a computer this entire time, turned to me. Most people are put off by the idea of being filmed. 
If that's the case with you, we can give you a sleep aid to help you doze off. Also, there will be an EEG cap strapped to your head so we can monitor your brain waves during an episode. We're trying to learn if certain spikes indicate certain events or emotions that person may be feeling while paralyzed. But I don't want to bore you with the technicalities of everything. He put out his hand, palm facing up. I will need your phone, and anything else that may interfere with the machines while testing. I didn't think about that, I thought. I handed it over reluctantly, and Prue gave me a quick smile before going to leave. Just before the door closed, he poked his head back in and said, Someone will be with you in a moment, just to get you fitted for your sleeping attire and your EEG cap. Then, it's lights out at 8pm. He put on another quick smile and said, Sweet dreams, before softly closing the door behind him. It was then, the silence of that room set in. I could imagine that without the overhead lights, it would be like sitting in a sensory deprivation tank. I think I was sitting in that room for three hours before anyone actually came by. When they did, it was a a younger woman in scrubs. In an attempt to break the monotony, I said, Hello, in the most cheerful voice I could muster. She just ignored me as she measured my head and body, never actually saying anything, just giving subtle hand movements to direct me where I needed to be. She also had very deep, dark bags under her eyes. I felt bad for her. She seemed so disassociated with everything, but before I could try to talk to her more, she was finished and walked out. About 30 minutes later, she returned with an empty bag marked Personal Belongings and handed it to me with my new pajamas. It was here she finally spoke. Change, please. Her voice was soft, but not in a delicate or pretty way. It was more like the voice of someone who'd given up. Someone who was broken. She turned her back to me so I could change with some semblance of privacy. Once I was done, she took the bag with my old clothes and wrote my name on them. Hooked up the EEG cap, the IV, the heart rate monitor and began to leave. Not able to stop myself, I blurted out, Is... Is everything okay? She stopped. The door held open with her foot. Turning back to me, I could see her eyes were getting red, and there were tears begging for escape. She gave me a weak smile and said, Sweet dreams lights turned out when the door shut and I was left to my own thoughts. Being in a completely dark room with little to no sound other than the low hum of some of the machines was a surreal experience. I lied there for nearly 30 minutes before finally feeling comfortable enough to fall asleep. I had fully prepared myself to experience an episode that night. It was a new place and I was unfamiliar to my surroundings. So when I opened my eyes and couldn't move, I was prepared for it. At first, I didn't see anything, and I mean that in the most literal way. The room was so dark, I wouldn't have been able to see my hand in front of my face, but as time ticked on and my episode continued, I began seeing bright flashes of light. My first thought was lightning, but I couldn't hear a storm outside, and I knew this room had no windows. But as it continued flashing, it would get faster and faster by the minute, to the point where it was nothing short of a strobe light you'd see in a nightclub. Eventually, though, the flashing settled, and the room was bathed in a white, sterile kind of light, akin to a doctor's office. And then, everything else came into focus. The walls of my room were what I noticed first. Instead of the sound-dampening panels I'd seen when I came here, they were now covered in a classic 1980s wood paneling. The walls were decorated with several crucifixes and family photos of people I didn't recognize. Their hairstyles, big and poofy, matched the time period this room seemed to be in as well. I moved my eyes to the other side of the room, and if it had been possible for me to do so, 
I would have jumped out of my skin. One of the women in the photos on the wall was staring down at me while I lied there and she was crying. My focus was totally on her, but behind her I could see a kaleidoscope of beige and brown mixing together like someone took every color in this room and threw it into a blender. Her mouth was moving, and for a moment I couldn't make out what she'd been saying. It was only when she reached over to the bedside table and clicked off the lamp that I was able to understand her. It's gonna be okay, Martha. It's gonna be okay. Just go to sleep, Martha. Just, just go to sleep. I wanted to talk to her, ask her what she meant, ask her who Martha was, but before I could, I felt a weight come over my abdomen. This wasn't something I was new to, but it was rare for me, and given my situation, I found myself much more worried about this weight than I'd ever been in the past. This one felt different. Even though I couldn't see it, I knew she'd climbed on top of me. Not in a sexual or sensual way, but in a way that had a different purpose. When a new weight came over my face and head, I knew what that purpose was. She was suffocating me, I thought. Rather, she was suffocating whoever Martha was. My chest tightened as I struggled to breathe, my body still not giving me the gift of movement. My breaths became shorter. I could feel the burn in my chest crescendo into a full-blown house fire in my ribcage. I was sure I was going to die until finally... I woke up. I sat up in my bed, gasping for air, clutching at my throat and face, making sure that there was nothing there. The room was pitch black again, no longer illuminated by the ghostly white light like before, but the beeps of my heart rate monitor let me know that I was back in reality. With nothing to tell me how much longer I had till morning, I just threw myself back on the bed, exhausted and scared, and just stared into the black until someone knocked on the door a few hours later. Hello, a familiar voice called out. I hope your first night went well. It was Dr. Prue. He was much more perky and excited than I was at the moment. I sat up in bed, narrowing my eyes as they tried to adjust to the overhead lights Prue turned on while coming in. A simple morning rolled off my lips. Prue wasted no time and was at the computer writing down things, taking notes, and speaking softly to himself. Seems you had quite the night in here. How you feeling now that you're awake? He hadn't looked up from his clipboard once so far. My thoughts swam around in my brain for a few moments before I was finally able to muster up a few words. I've... I've never had an experience as intense as the one I had last night. It was... It felt so real in the moment. I suppose that sounds silly. I know it's not real. His eyes shut up at me when I said that. It struck me as odd in the moment, but he simply asked, Can you explain in as little or as much detail as possible what it is you experienced? His eyes, now back at his clipboard, seemed more intense than ever, and I could swear he was beginning to turn red in the face. I walked him through the whole experience. The lights the walls of the room, the photos, and finally, the suffocation. His eyes were totally transfixed on me now as he hung on to every word like a little kid listening to their grandfather tell stories of the war. When I was finished, he stared at me silently for a moment before excusing himself. The whole exchange was strange to me. I couldn't really read his face, so whether or not he was happy about what I'd experienced or not was lost on me. I was alone for about an hour before the same nurse from before came in. Her eyes were now totally bloodshot, and the dark bags only seemed to deepen. 
She rolled in a cart with a simple breakfast of eggs, toast, and sausage. As she adjusted the table to my height, she said, First night's always the hardest. It gets easier. She looked at me, an empty smile plastered on her tired, drooping face. Eat up, she said. You're gonna need it. I want to talk about what she'd said, but she was gone before I knew it. First night is always the hardest? How would she know? Did she participate in this at some point as well? There were a multitude of other questions swimming around in my head, but with no one there to answer them, I just ate my food and tried to relax. If what the nurse had said was true, tonight was going to be a more pleasant experience. I just hoped she was right. Not long after finishing my meal, Peru came in, only this time he was carrying a manila folder rather than his clipboard. Normally those things were reserved for x-rays, so I was confused when I saw it. Apparently, I wore this confusion on my face because he pulled up the chair next to me and said, Don't worry, we didn't x-ray you or anything, he laughed. We just have some drawings we'd like you to look at and tell us what you feel. Confused, I said. Like a Rorschach test? Prue scratched the stubble on his chin while looking to the ceiling as if the answer to my question was somewhere along the panels. Sort of. Except these will be much easier to make out and aren't up for interpretation. He could tell I was still confused, so he sat up a little and said, How about we just start, huh? I just nodded and he opened up the folder and pulled out three pieces of paper. On each was a watercolor painting of the things I'd seen last night. The room, the painting on the wall, and the woman who'd been standing over me. They were right there. Prue noticed a jump in my heart rate and took a quick note saying, Do the places in these paintings mean something to you? I was dumbfounded. I stared at those paintings for at least five minutes until finally saying what I'd been thinking the whole time. I've seen this place before. Prue gave a simple, hmm, with a questioning tone. Last night, I said. During my sleep paralysis, this, this is what I saw. That woman tried to kill me, or at least it felt like it. She called me Martha. I heard Prue's foot begin to tap, which felt out of place for a man who seemed so calm and together. I looked over at him, trying to read him, but I couldn't get anything. The man had a poker face like I'd never seen. Without saying another word, he packed up the paintings, then reached into his lab coat and handed me a white envelope with the Sleep Lux logo, complete with sweet dreams underneath it. And then he left the room without another word. The envelope had a check for $1,000 and a note inside. Here at Sleep Lux, we appreciate your time greatly. As you may have noticed, this check is dated for one week from today. In order to receive this money, you must complete the full week of our study. If you decide to leave before your week is up, we will make sure the check will be made invalid. If you have any concerns, previous engagements, or medical requirements that would stop you from being able to complete the trial, please let your nurse know before dinner at 7 p.m. Thank you for your cooperation. And from everyone here at Sleep Lux, sweet dreams. The sweet dreams at the bottom of the letter was written in all uppercase and felt very intimidating. The whole letter, as a matter of fact, felt heated, like a threat. I put it to the side and stared at the check. Was $1,000 really worth going through that again? Being suffocated by something my brain created? But that's when it hit me. How could those paintings have been created if I was the one who'd seen the hallucinations in the first place? And how did they make them so spot on? 
I realized I was likely dealing with something much bigger than myself or anyone could imagine, but money was tight, so I decided to see it through to the end. The nurse came and dropped off my food sometime later, but we had no notable interaction this time. We just shared half-hearted smiles, and then she was gone. I ate my food, and before I knew it, it was lights out for a second time. I don't know how long it took my paralysis to kick in this time, but to my absolute misfortune, I was greeted at that flashing light again. It was like a paparazzi camera flashing continuously until finally it illuminated the entire room in that all-too-familiar sterile light. I found myself in the same room as before. The same wood paneling, the same photos on the wall, and the same bedside table. The only difference this time was that I wasn't alone with the woman who tried to kill me. There were many people surrounding me. Some of them held looks of concern. Others looked down with disdain. One person held all my attention, though. A doctor. One who looked very much like Dr. Prue. When he spoke, he even held some of the same inflection in his voice. I'm not sure there's much more we can do, Barbara. Martha isn't responding to our treatments, and we try everything in the book. That's when it hit me. I was Barbara's partner. I was an old woman on bed rest for some kind of ailment that, at the time, and maybe even now, was incurable. The older woman spoke up, but just above a whisper. You're not trying hard enough. There has to be something else we can do. I don't want to sit here and see my wife lie there and wither away, staring into nothing. Can't you at least minister her something that'll put her to sleep? I don't think she slept in weeks, hasn't blinked in weeks. There has to be something. Her voice cracked, and I felt a tear fall onto my cheek. The Doc Pro doppelganger simply shook his head, packed up his things, and left the room. When I heard the door click shut, everything in the room froze. Everyone's breathing seized. The air felt heavier. Even the analog clock on the wall stopped counting the seconds as they went by. And then, one by one, everyone faded away as the room got darker. Everyone except Barbara. Finally, the clicking of the analog clock returned, and before I knew it, Barbara was climbing on top of me the same way she'd done last night before mouthing, I'm sorry, and bringing the pillow down on my face again. The same song and dance played out until I jerked up out of my bed, clutching my throat, fighting for air. I was exhausted. Every muscle in my body was in pain. I felt like I'd completed an Ironman competition. Once I finally caught my breath and felt somewhat relaxed, I just sat back on my bed and waited for someone to come in. I didn't care who it was. I just needed to see a real person, someone I could talk to about what I'd seen and felt that night. The first person to come in was Prue. He was wearing that same empty smile that doctors always have. It was an attempt to quell my fears, I'm sure, but it didn't work. As soon as I saw the manila envelope under his arm, I knew where this was going. He pulled up a chair beside me and said, So, any episodes last night? I was so annoyed by the question. Given what happened yesterday, I knew that he already knew the answer to that question, so that's what I told him. That's what's in the folder, right? Everything I saw last night? He looked shocked at first, but then he settled more into his chair. Pulling out the paintings, he said, You catch on quick, don't you, Matthew? He tossed the paintings over to me. They were what I'd expected. While the figures were warped and disfigured, there was no doubt it was a depiction of my hallucination, if 
You can even call it that. Prue continued. Sleeplux is more than a research company. We're looking for ways to connect with things that many believe don't exist. I looked up from the paintings, confused. When you were being vetted for this experiment, this important research, you were asked if you believed in life after death. Am I right? I nodded. And you said you did not. Am I correct in that? I nodded again. Yes, but what does that have to do with this? Prue's eyes grew fiery. It has everything to do with it. That's the whole point of this experiment, this this research. He took a deep breath. My father founded Sleeplux with the hope of finding proof of there being some kind of form of life after death. He believed that those who experience sleep paralysis are neither actually awake nor asleep, but rather in the spirit world. That somehow, while our body is trying to wake us up, a residual spirit holds us back to tell us their story. His father must have been a man I saw, I thought. The technology wasn't there when my father was attempting it, but now we have the ability to project one's experience into the mind of another person, someone capable of bringing these visions to life. That young woman you keep seeing, the nurse? She also majored in art, and she's been our main artist for nearly three months now. Every night she paints someone's experience, but never have we seen experiences as vivid as yours. I was shocked. You're subjecting her to this as well? I said with a slight anger in my voice. And how did I see your father in my hallucination? How do you seem to know more about this place? The people who lived here? He scooted closer to me and began talking softly. This was Barbara and Martha's old place back when doctors still did house visits. My father had been introducing Martha into a state of permanent sleep paralysis, hoping that she could connect with her parents who'd owned this house before she inherited it. But like I said, the technology wasn't there. There was no way to see what she was seeing, but now we can! The look on my face must have clued him off to what I was thinking. Listen to me. We only need you here one more night, maybe two, and I think we can build a strong enough case to make this mainstream. We know how to induce sleep paralysis. We can help people. We just need to do a few more trials. I was becoming angrier by the minute. Regular people don't need this, I said. Regular people don't want to relive the final moments of their loved ones' lives. They just want to be with them. This can't do that. I've felt inches from death for two nights in a row. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. This can't work, Prue. It's a lost cause. His face turned red as he leaned in. Only a few inches from mine, he said, It has to. Snatching up the paintings, he stormed from the room. As soon as I felt he was out of earshot, I grabbed my bag of clothes, threw them on, and ran from the building, ignoring every call for me as I went. Prue yelled out, the receptionist yelled out, but I didn't care. Stepping out into the sunlight felt surreal. Finally, the light I was feeling wasn't artificial. A few seconds of blinking my eyes and shielding them from the sun, and I was in my car and on my way home. Prue chased my car for at least half a mile before falling to his knees, crying. Back home, I locked all my doors and windows and just sat there for a moment trying to think of what to do. I thought about the money I'd left. I thought about how they still had my cell phone, but mostly I thought about that nurse who was younger than me, no doubt just out of college, being forced to see the things that I saw, the things other people were seeing. I thought about them, the ones in the other rooms of that godforsaken house and what they were going through. 
and it was all just to try and prove some crackpot theory about life after death. I finally decided the best thing to do was try and save these people the only way I knew how. I looked up the number from my state's medical board and reported sleep lux for malpractice, gave them the address of the home they were operating from, and hung up without giving them a name. That was last week. Today, I saw in the news that the house had been raided after someone on a late-night jog heard screams coming from the house. The police found everything. In the end, there were over 20 people in that house, some of which were said to have been awake for going on two months. It was a miracle they were even alive, though time would tell if they'd recover from it all. The nurse was reunited with her family. Apparently, She'd been reported missing two weeks after graduating and moving here to Washington to start an internship at a small private practice. Her parents hadn't heard from her for over five months. As far as Dr. Prue goes, he was charged with numerous things. False imprisonment, kidnapping, and many other egregious things I'll spare you the details of. I'm not sure how much time he'll get, but I doubt he's going to get off easy. As far as me, I'm doing okay. As best I can, anyway. My episodes are more frequent now, no doubt because of the stress, but I've yet to have an experience like I had in that place. I just hope the other people who are in there, far longer than me, fare better. That said, I can't help but think about what I did see while I was there. I can't deny that Prue, or his father, rather, had discovered something. You can call it spirits projecting their memories onto you. You can call it life after death. Call it whatever you want. I'll just say this. Next time you experience sleep paralysis, don't be so quick to write it off as just a hallucination. Hello everyone, I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories, especially that second one, um, written by yours truly. I got the idea of it when I thought back to when I had experienced sleep paralysis for the first time at 13, and sleep paralysis has always been something very interesting to me, so I wanted to explore one of the many theories that I've seen kind of floating around online. Those people who are spiritual feel like sleep paralysis opens a door to the other world or, you know, whatever you'd like to call it. Me personally, I don't think that's the case. I'm not a spiritual person. I'm not a really, I'm just not a spiritual person. It's not my beliefs, but I would love to hear what you all think sleep paralysis could be, because as far as I know, there isn't a a full-on explanation for it. Um, It's kind of hard to study, given that it's, it's fairly random for most people, I believe. I'm sure there are people out there who suffer from it regularly, and my heart goes out to you. I've only experienced it maybe four times my entire life, and that's enough for me. So if you are someone who has it on a regular basis, feel free to share some of your experiences if you feel comfortable doing so. Um, And that goes for anyone. If you've ever experienced it, whether mild or extreme, be sure to share your experiences below. I'll share my experience down there as well. And we get a conversation going. I think that's the question for this video Have you ever experienced it? And if you did, what was it like? Furthermore, what do you think causes it? Is it just uh, like our brain going haywire? Or is there more of a supernatural force at play? I'd love to hear what you all think. And let me know what you thought of the story as well. I had a lot of fun writing it. And I cannot wait to write some more. I've been having a really good um, 
I've been like bitten by a writing bug lately or something. I'm not sure what it is, but I really enjoyed writing a lot lately and I'm very excited to get more stories, original stories out here on the channel to share with you all. So yeah. So question, have you ever experienced sleep paralysis? Yes or no? What was it like if you have? And what do you think causes it? Is there some supernatural play at hand or not? But that's going to be it for tonight. Thank you all so much for listening. Hope you have a wonderful morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are. Take care of yourselves and those around you. And as always, sleep tight.